starting with our quote that we've been listening to for the past, well, this is the fourth week. Jesus has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in him, then he must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. This morning marks the fourth week in this series, Rejoicing in Christ. We have been seeking, and I pray by the Spirit, finding in the last few weeks a joy of that all-sufficient and overwhelming all-sufficiency in Christ. By looking at Jesus, as we looked, as we have looked at him as God, as man, his work upon the cross, and this week in our unity with him. We are seeking not just to rejoice in what we get from him and what comes with having a faith in him, but the one who is giving such abundance to us. And this is important this morning as we will be looking at some of the great blessings that we have in being united with Christ. And it's all too easy to get swept away, I think, by the wonder of such blessings, and they are wonderful. But how much more then is the one who gives them wonderful than the blessings themselves? Let's, uh, I'm going to add my prayer to Les's because I need <laughs> some time in prayer this morning as well. Now let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning giving thanks for your word because it points to you. It teaches us about you. And it is truth something that we can stake our lives on. Father, we give thanks that this morning, as, as we have in the last few weeks, we get time to spend, Lord, thinking and hearing, Lord, and receiving your word. Now, this isn't Nat speaking. Uh, ultimately, this is your word speaking. This is your son and your spirit at work in us, telling us more about you, revealing more about you to us. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning for a great work of ongoing mercy that you've already begun in our lives to reveal more of your Son to us. That we would be able to see him in his glory as one that has conquered sin, as one that has loved aboundingly. Lord, who has humbled himself, who's come to us, and Lord has unified, uh, has brought unity between us and himself, that we would never be separated from him and inherit all of his blessings, Lord, that he was not jealously guarding all that he had, but eager and willing to share with the ones that he loves. Heavenly Father, help us uh, as we read and listen to this word this morning. Lord, not to get caught up in the wonderful blessings that you give us. And they are great, Lord, and we give thanks for them. 
but Lord to be able to see and be in awe of the one who gives them of the work of your son of your own delight in him and your delight in us through him Lord work a great work in our hearts it is always a work of mercy for us to see more of you thank you Heavenly Father Amen Although Jesus has completed his time on earth and as we see at the beginning of Acts has ascended to be at the right hand of the majesty on high we are not separate from him. He said to his disciples in the upper room before the Passover do not let your hearts be troubled Don't be afraid. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. Now the reason they didn't have to be sorrowful was because he would soon be sending his spirit to be with them. Reeves says, Jesus has become one of us, but now by the spirit he would wonderfully become one with us. Not just one of us, but one with us. While Jesus was here uh, on earth in his 30-odd years, he resided with us, didn't he? But his union with us in that time was limited. It was external rather than internal and limited to those who were around him at the time, who could see him, who could touch him, who could hear his voice. But through the Spirit now, he is internally united with all that believe. Likewise, Union shared between fellow believers is far greater on this side of the ascension. An example of this is found, of this unity that we have, is found in the communion that we take. As we see, uh, as we take the bread, what do we do with it? We take it into us. It doesn't just reside near us. We don't just stuff it in our pockets. And the same with the wine. Thus, all of the disunity that began in the Garden of Eden came to an end in Jesus. When Adam and Eve ate of that fruit and knew shame, they hid in their nakedness. They hid from one another and they hid from God. But now we are unified to God and to one another through the Spirit, through Christ. No fig leaves are needed anymore. Still more significantly, we are, we reside in unity with God once again. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, out of the two, thus making peace. 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now there is a a PC word, politically correct word that gets used to describe marriages these days or the equivalent of marriages uh, when it's not taken, not have been done. You know what that word is? Partner. Who is your partner? I understand that this term is used to dodge awkward conversations in case you are having, uh, talking to a large group where not everyone is married. They're in long relationships instead. Instead of using the word wife or husband and making an assumption, we use the word partner instead to cover our bases. But that word really isn't good enough to describe a marriage, is it? We aren't partners with our spouse. We are not a team that works together for life. Marriage is not simply living alongside another person, being buddies with benefits. No, Scripture says that in marriage, the man and the woman become one flesh. Adam's words concerning Eve when he first lays eyes on her are wonderful. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Do we understand that unity that is in marriage? Not always. When we make those vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, if we are saying them knowing that we are entering into one flesh, then when your spouse is worse, you are worse. When they are sick, you are sick. When they are poor, you yourself are poor. And when they are better and richer and healthier, you are better, richer and healthier. There's no separation. We're not just carers or people that endure our spouses as maybe it sometimes does feel. Why would we enter into a contract, a covenant like this of such oneship when there can be quite large downsides if the other person is sick or poor? The great prize is why we get married. The great prize of marriage. And it's not that we become wealthy together or that we live and are able to achieve our goals. The great prize of marriage is that person. You get to be married to the person you love. 
You get to be joined to them, to love them, to lay down your life for them, not simply to gain access to the things that they bring with them. They are the prize. Now, the shape of marriage given to us in Scripture is but a shadow of a greater unity that we share as believers. The unity that we have with Jesus. And often this oneness with Jesus and with his church is described as a marriage between the bridegroom and his bride. And like our marriages, it's not a partnership of convenience that we get access by having a relationship to God, to heaven, to his blessings, to sonship, or a way of simply being able to weather the difficult times. No, the prize of our marriage to Jesus is Jesus. He is the great prize. He, in all of the beauty that we discussed last week, is the prize of the gospel and the delights of the Christian life and our message. This is what we receive in the coming of the Spirit, is open eyes to the glory of Jesus, to how wonderful he is, and to share in the Father's own eternal pleasure in him. Open, open, it opens our eyes to Jesus' unfathomable love for us, how kind and merciful he is and has been, how much he has suffered for our forgiveness, how he is truly better than all the other things that we could possibly run after that he chooses to love us and join himself to us. He chose to humble himself, to be with us, to be sick, to be poor and weak with us. And then he takes all of that sickness and poverty and weakness seen in the rags of sin that we wore and dresses himself in it just like us in every way. And he's buried as we are buried. United with humanity. But as we know, death could not hold him. His righteousness overwhelms death and sin, and he rises dressed no longer in those rags. It says in John at the end that when Peter looked into the tomb, what he found were the, were the wrappings and the linen that dressed Jesus in death. And they were there still in the tomb while Jesus was gone. Taken to the place where sin finds its end and simply left there. For now he is dressed in robes of righteousness, robes that he offers to all who believe in him, all because he chose to love his bride despite her sinful condition, despite her weakness. This is the Christ that the Spirit opens our eyes to, that we might delight in him and know 
that we are bound to him. When we were worse, he was worse with us, for us. When we were poor, he was poor for us. When we were sick, he was sick for us in all of our suffering. And when he is better, we are made better. When he is made richer, we are made richer. And when he is well, we are well. Forevermore. And we get to be joined to this great man who loves us and inspires the love of the Father and our own love for him. Knowing yourself to be desired and beloved, a beloved bride of that bridegroom is the fuel that runs the Christian life. We cannot obey his law out of duty. Always, it always turns into works. Works to be able to earn that affection from Jesus, to deserve it. But when we delight and rejoice in the knowledge that in our total inability and undesirability he loved. When we delight and rejoice in the knowledge that we already have this wonderful Jesus, already have him, that we've been speaking of, it is the great prize of the gospel as ours today, then we obey out of a rejoicing heart, a freed heart, dressed already in the righteousness of Christ. His love for us overflows from us, overwhelms us. It breaks the damn walls of works and of hurt and of suffering that is occupied in our lives and that we've experienced in the past, and we are free in him. Reeves speaks a little in this chapter on unity about the disconnection seen between evangelism and discipleship within the church. When it comes to evangelism or evangelism events, what is preached is often that salvation is free. Who doesn't want a get out of hell and enter heaven free card? And that's the great appeal of the evangelism event. But when people get on board and go to their first discipleship class, they are a little confused because there seems to be a horrendous price attached to it. Holy living. It's free, except you have to also do this. very confusing for them and you can see the disconnection there is a separation in this method of thinking between salvation and accepting Christ accepting Christ at the evangelism event and Christian living taught in the discipleship class Reeve points out that salvation and Christianity and Christian living are both about Jesus 
So when he preaches, he doesn't offer heaven or an escape from hell for free. He offers Christ. It's not to get out of the predicament you have, but look at the one who is so much greater. He writes, I offer no life apart from him. He is salvation. In him is all righteousness, and knowing him is the heart of holiness. Luther wrote, through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. Not righteousness separate from Jesus. Jesus is what we receive. Over the years, I have attended many different evangelism talks on the how-tos, how to be an effective uh, evangelist. It's it's not my gifting. (laughs) I try. I must admit that each one has always faced this problem. If salvation is free, why does it cost so much? I have not found one that simply tells people of a Christ that is worth rejoicing in as the the reason that they come to faith. Where he is the great prize of salvation. He is the one and the reason that you would pursue any sort of holy living. These other methods like to lure people in. It's like luring them into a restaurant with great promises of food only to offer them spinach first. You have to eat this first. Then you can enjoy the great food. We promise all the blessings of Christ. But first you have to love Jesus. And we make him spinach Makes you sad, doesn't it? The great prize reduced to the thing that must be endured so that you can enter heaven rather than the one that you delight and look forward to being with for the rest of eternity. Jesus is not the spinach. Richard Sibbs wrote a series of sermons on Isaiah 25 called The Glorious Feast of the Gospel. And in it he writes this, The believer has put on the Lord Jesus, the wedding garment, and is not only the guest, but the spouse of Christ and the bride at this wedding supper. Here, Jesus Christ is the master of the feast and the cheer and provision too. He is the Lamb of God, the ram caught in the thicket. He is the fattened calf. His flesh is meat indeed and blood drink indeed. He's everything that we get and want inside of our faith. The great reward. 
In Charles Spurgeon's first sermon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle on March 25th, 1861, he said this, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented, uh, sorry, frequented by worshippers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. And his last words from the pulpit, dated June 1891, were these, It is heaven to serve Jesus. I am a recruiting sergeant and I would fain find a few recruits at this moment. Every man must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Sorry, a few spelling errors in the notes. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ either self or the saviour. You will find sin, self, Satan and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the livery of Christ, you would find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains, There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle when wind blows cold. He always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind and tender, yea, lavish and super abundant in love, you will always find it in him. These 40 years and more that I have served, have served him, blessed be his name. And I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it so pleased him. His service is life and peace and joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even this day. Amen. You see how he describes not just what he gets from faith in Christ, his joy and his peace, but it's what he gets in Christ. We can often try and seek these things in Christianity apart from Jesus without looking to him for the one that actually is that joy, is that peace to us. In our unity with Christ, we not only share in a love for him, 
in his love, but also in his life. The life that he has standing now before his heavenly father, a life shared, a share in his life and a sonship that is unsoiled and no longer separated by sin. Now, what type of life he has comes down to his identity and the identity of the father who envies the life of a son who is despised by a cruel father. Thankfully, that's not the identity we're talking about. That is not Jesus and it is not our father in heaven. Reeves says the son's very identity is found in this, that he is the beloved of the Father. All that he does flows from this identity. He doesn't act out of guilt or neediness or a desire to curry favour with his Father or anybody else. He doesn't need to earn it from the Father. For eternity, his Father has showered him with so much love that he overflows. He cannot but love his father back and long to please him. Being the son of so perfectly kind a father, it is the meat and the drink of him to do his will. That is the life of the son of God. John 4 says, my food said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It would not be news to many of you that through our unity with Jesus, we have been adopted into the sonship of Jesus. And in that sonship, we are called children of God. Paul says in Romans 8, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Yet what is your understanding of your identity in the eyes of the Heavenly Father? I've attended a number of parenting nights over the years. I'm still not good at it. One thing that keeps coming back to me on those nights is the need to be consistent in our parenting consistent with your children, to be an unchanging rock of certainty in their lives so that whatever else in life is changing around them, they have someone who does not. And I'd love to say that I have achieved that for my children. I would love to say that, but I can't. My daughter Constance often comes into the living room after having gone to bed she comes in crying because she's afraid, afraid of rats, rats under the bed, foxes outside the window, snakes in the covers. It's different every time. Often it's because I've said something during the day and it's stuck to her. On my good days, I have all the time in the world to be a consistent father. to be able to listen, to be able to guide her through her fear so that she can lay it aside. 
On my less impressive and less consistent days, I am impatient with her interruption of what I am doing. And she must wonder, what will Dad be like today? How will he react to my fears today? Should I keep these fears to myself and my worry to myself or can I take them to him? Thankfully, she keeps doing it, irrelevant of my inconsistency. A mercy. I am inconsistent in my attitude towards my children as my father was to me and his father was to him. And I'm sure as we all have been to our own children. But not so our Heavenly Father. He is the definition of consistency. He is the same today as he was before creation and as he will be a million years from now. And his children are secure before him. We are secure before this consistent father. The rest of that Romans 8 passage says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. My dear Father. Our adoption brings us to share in the Son's own affections for the Father in response to the Father's affections for him. We can take all that Reeves wrote of Christ's relationship to the Father and through our unity with him in the Spirit apply it to ourselves. In unity with Christ, we are the beloved of the Father. All that we do flows from that identity. We do not need to act out of guilt out of neediness or to curry the favour with our father or anybody else. That's not why we have Christian living. Our father has showered us with so much love that we overflow. We cannot but love our father back and long to please him. Being the children of so perfectly kind a father is the meat and drink for us to do his will. That is the life of the children of God. 1 John 3 says this, and the New King James Version is the only one that does justice to this verse because it says, Behold, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. 
Packer wrote in his book, Knowing God, that adoption to sonship is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than our justification. While the justification of our sins sees God, the judge, satisfied with us, it is our adoption that sees the relationship with God as one of love. Overwhelming love poured out upon us, of family, where he is not only the high judge but our father and we are his children whom he takes pleasure in. Only in our adoption is there a profound sense of the closeness and affection that is shared between the father and the son. Our adoption is, as Packer puts it, one of the true great yardsticks by which we can measure the love of God for us. The first is the cross, the second sonship, adoption. In our unity in Christ, sonship in his sonship and life, we gain all that brings Jesus joy. We gain the the very affections that he has for the world. The things that bring him joy bring us joy in him. What he is passionate for, we become passionate for. What makes his heart cry out, our hearts cry out as well. A heart shared also with the Father. And we see it in the desire for the reaching of the weak and the lost. Of mercy, a heart for those who are not worthy of it. Isn't this the great command? To fulfill all the law, love your neighbour, love God and love your neighbour as you would love yourself. As we share in his sonship, our old heart of stone crumbles away into dust and only leaves the very heart of the son. Reeves writes, The more I know myself to be a true child of God and the more I see of Christ, the deader I find myself to sin. It still allures me, but not as it did. I find old simple desires dying and new holy ones springing up. I find myself longing, yearning to be free of the sins that I once held so dearly. I have a new heart, after all. The heart of a child of God. And it feels and wants differently. Like Christ. And it says in Hebrews 2 that when Jesus looks at us, we who were once sinners, distant, with no affection or desire for God, 
when he looks at us, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He says that I will declare your name, Lord, to my brothers and sisters. In their midst, I will sing your praises. And again he says, here am I and the children of God, our children that God has given me. What does all this mean? It means that as we face life even now, we are not our own. And we are not alone in all of it. You are sharing in life, in the life of Christ. Sharing in his joys, sharing in his agonies and his concerns, in his passions, as that old heart crumbles away and we find the new one beneath. That is where we are going to ultimately leave this talk this morning. There is so much more in this. Isn't it wonderful to hear that we are utterly secure in our, in our unity with the Son? All that He is, we are. And the pains that we still feel of being in flesh that grows old, I have foot issues at the moment. It's not going to be a problem in the future. (laughs) All of it that feels like it's keeping us here and that we are alone and isolated isn't true. That's just another lie that the flesh or the devil tells us. This is our truth. Christ is with us through the Spirit even now. And even now we stand in him as he is in us before the Father, holy, blameless, a completed work, assured of where we're coming. And I delight in writing and reading what Reeves is sharing, hearing of that love poured out upon Christ and knowing that that same love is poured upon us then in him. I pray that we can come into a greater and a greater understanding of that today, but in life. Because it's what sets us free. Everything I'm finding, everything keeps boiling down to love. The love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for us. And it is powerful but we often grow blind to it. And so we must continue to read our word so that we might glimpse more of him, delight in him more, rejoice in him more. Certainly not to earn any affection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the love that you've poured upon your Son and in him onto us. Lord, to hear those those words from Reeves, 
Lord, it does make our hearts sing and rejoice and pray that we could just remain in this space, Lord, uh, and not grow dim or foggy, Lord, uh, to these truths. But, Lord, remain aware of your love for us. I pray just, Lord, for everyone here as they open their word in the coming days and weeks, as they share with one another, Lord, your truth. Lord, as they engage in prayer, Father, that they would, Lord, that you would peel away the scales that sit over our eyes towards you. Lord, to uh, rejoice and live a life out of rejoicing in you as the great prize that they have received of the great love that's been poured upon them and upon, uh, uh, upon all of us. And that we act out of what you've already done. We're just responding to your love, not earning it. Lord, there are so many different areas of life that this affects this truth. So many ways in which we have continued to abide in works. So many ways in which we continue to attempt to earn your affection, Lord, your love. But you give it to us freely. Father, help us to be able to see those places where the old heart still lingers. Lord, and to pour your truth upon them that it might wash away that old dusty heart. Lord God, that we might continue to just live freely in all that you've done. And we give thanks Father, that the life that we live is going to be, uh, Lord, is one that is secure before you and that you are a consistent God. We can come to with all our fears and our worries and you will always be there, loving us abundantly. Bless our time after this, Lord, our conversations with one another, that they be encouraging and our travels as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.